Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's. Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But I don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shiny man? Yeah, this is the March 31st edition of the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast, a day after Gary Neville's sacking as Valencia manager. Well, maybe quite a few days after that sacking took place, but it's the day after it was made public. Anyway, hi, Ken. Hi, Murph. Hi, Owen. How are you? Do you always mention the date at the start of the show? No, I thought I'd... I just wanted to change it up a little bit. Because you know what you've just done? You've reminded me that it's my parents' wedding anniversary, so I'd like to thank Uh, you for that. How many years? 43, Owen. 43. Solid as a rock. Well, great couple, Tony and Francis. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've got nothing to say about that, have you? I, I congratulations. Why? Why you got to do my parents like this, Ken? <laughs> I'm not just saying you think it's great. It's it's wonderful. Ken's only interested in what's the fiftieth day? Fiftieth is uh, golden. Golden, isn't it? I think it's yeah. golden. Yeah. I'm going to take you back even further. Now that we're talking dates, lads. Yeah. I don't. Hopefully, this won't. Hopefully, Murphy won't have any serious life events on February the third. Of this year, Barcelona seven, Valencia nil. You remember that stuffing, of course. I remember that. You remember the post-match press conference? Yes. That was when I looked at this and thought, "This isn't going to work out." I mean, next this ha- question. Next question was, "Have you thought about your resignation?" No. Next question, please. Next question, please. Uh, there was one. There was a weird interaction at the end. I was just looking back at the transcript again. How would you? This is all the, the whole press conference is online, and uh, if you ha- didn't see it at the time, it is worth watching just to see Gary Neville's the the mixture of. Defiance, admirable defiance in one way, but also slight, that sort of haughty arrogance that people would have thought he had as a player, I think, came to the fore in this, uh, and, and, and that he managed to uh, maybe shed from himself as a pundit, it seems to come to the fore in this. At one stage at the end, he's asked, I thought it was actually a pretty good question, how would you, how would Gary Neville, the Sky pundit, have assessed Valencia's performance tonight? <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. That's an annoying question to get. Oh, it's, it's an incredibly it annoying question, yeah. but I, I think it's that's a, that's a That is a mocking question that is a sarcastic question come on are you serious oh no it is sar- oh no of course it is yeah that's like but um, yeah the great gary neville how would you have dissected that well it's not quite as bad as the question asked of chris eubank jr well, saw that one this week that was would you would you rather have would, the belt or or your nick, opponent yeah your opponent's healthy. full health back which is you're getting into particularly unfair territory there i think but anyway mm. i don't know why i brought that up it's just Sometimes things pop into your head and don't actually necessarily have a connection with what you're talking about. So I'm going to get back to what I was asking. Stream here. of consciousness here. Yeah, I think that could be that. <laughs> Owen that Leopold is. Bloom McDevitt. <laughs> you're nicking somebody else's question, aren't you? Is what he said about that. 
Uh, that last one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and right. the reporter said, no, it's my question. Well, I don't think it is. <laughs> so you're kind of getting into this uh, slightly childish, childish Donald Trump type um, mm. spat with a, uh, with a reporter. Yeah, yeah. No, you don't need that. Um, uh, you know, it, it was obviously going badly uh, pretty much from the outset for Gary Neville. Um, and you can see that there's quite a lot of glee at his demise, you know, his, his failure. Uh, it's... Uh, and you wonder maybe why why that is. I mean, it's hard it's hard to know what to think about this. On the one, there's there's a couple of ways that you can look at it. On the one hand, Gary Neville has gone out there, uh, put it all on the line. Uh, he's taken a pummeling, but it's the kind of risk that you should be applauded for taking. You know, nobody uh, if you're just sitting in a comfortable chair uh, watching things from from your studio, you're not really risking anything. And uh, you're ultimately, you know, maybe you, to take risks like this is, it should be, is something that someone should be praised for. On the other hand, what he did was insanely stupid. Mm. Why would you go and take over um, a, a, a big, troubled club in Spain, a country where that you don't really, you don't really know the league, you, you've no experience of working there, you don't know the language, you are that he he sort of. You remember George Bush said he, he gave the word the language misunderestimated? Well, Gary Neville misoverestimated his own uh, ability. I realize we've just used, compared Neville to both Trump and George W. Bush <laughs> quite early on in this podcast. Yeah, I mean, he, he, I, I don't think he, he's, I don't think he should really be compared to either one of those in most ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, so it's like, at what, at what level is a risk? Yeah, you know, uh, an acceptable, not an acceptable risk, but the kind of risk. Yeah, that's brave. That's that's sort of, that's ballsy. At, at what point does ballsy veer into, that's idiotic? Where do you fall on this, man? Well, I just think it was a major miscalculation. I mean, I think that there's all of the things that you could, I mean, I, I would say that it's a very ballsy thing for Gary Neville to become manager of West Brom uh, last January. You know, that given the his standing in the game, given the fact that he's working with England, in uh, in the year of a major football tournament, uh, obviously the Sky stuff. I think it's really ballsy for him to become the West Brom manager or manage, you know, got, you know anyone in the top two divisions in England. I think that's a really ballsy move. And uh, the same reasons you're applauding him for taking the Valencia job, they don't actually change a whole lot if he took over a job in the Premier League or in the, the Championship. I don't think. I think. Uh, it's very easy for someone to get into... I mean, he's the best at what he does by a mile, say, punditry, last January, yeah. in punditry. He's the best at what he does by a mile. And for him to get away from that in any respect is ballsy. So the fact that it would, he took on the risk that, that Ken has just outlined there, uh, he, did, he, he just didn't give himself... He didn't do himself any favours. He didn't give himself a chance to succeed at management. And, you know, you can kind of say, right, well, people are just... Forget about it. People won't. People won't forget about it, and people will. The excitement we felt when Gary Neville took over uh, Valencia, it would have been the exact same thing if he'd taken over, say, West Brom. I don't know why I keep using West Brom, but there you go. If he'd taken over West Brom, we'd have been really excited about that. And now, if he takes a job uh, after the Euros or something in English football, that same excitement won't be there. It won't be. It won't, he will. He is tainted by this. I mean, I don't think he's tainted as a pundit, but I think as a coach, he is. Well, tainted, I think he's doubt. definitely not tainted as a pundit. I, re- I really don't 
see how that could be the case. If Gary Neville comes back on TV tomorrow, are you, is anyone honestly thinking, oh, this guy failed? <laughs> Put your money where your mouth is, Neville. You, you, you tried it. Yeah. You couldn't do it, so you're mm. not in a position. I don't think so. Absolutely not. But I'm interested to see if Gary Neville thinks that. Like he spoke, anytime he spoke as a pundit, he spoke as a guy who won whatever it was, eight league medals or whatever, mm. nine league medals from uh, Man United. He I mean, still is that guy. He still is that guy, right? But if if uh, the next time Neville is excoriating a manager for a really terrible decision, is Neville not thinking at the same time, hmm, I'm not standing on the firm ground that I was standing on, you know, six months ago or 12 months ago before the Valencia job? Is it simply a question, though, of saying, oh, I'm, I'm not standing on the firm ground uh, or more a question of, well, I've, I've developed a bit more understanding and empathy for this person hmm. uh, and maybe... Maybe, you know, okay, maybe then it's not as much fun for the viewer. You don't see That's Gary it. Neville, yeah, like, yeah. eviscerating some, you know, poor manager, usually not an English manager. Although there's not too many of them in the Premier League. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I can think back to my own, um, even just my own thoughts on football commentators. You know, people people who watch football always end up thinking about the commentator. And oftentimes they end up thinking about what an idiot the commentator is. How can that idiot say that idiotic thing in his stupid voice? Who does this guy think he is? <laughs> then when I walked a mile in their shoes, <laughs> uh, I did a number of uh, I did a number of live commentaries and football matches, and I gotta say, Owen, it's actually not the easy job. You know, Alan Green, for instance, is someone who gets a lot of who gets a lot of abuse. <laughs> you know. Who's that Alan Green? He's such a moron. Listen to his 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 opinions. Why is he always sticking his opinions in? Uh, I don't care. What is, why does Alan Green care? That, why does he think I care what he thinks? You know, and and I mean that's a that's a nice version of the kind of stuff that you sometimes hear. But not just him, but lots of commentators. You do it, and I'm telling you, <laughs> you're particularly doing radio country. You're sitting there. Anything that comes into your head. You see the way you were saying earlier on, stuff just pops into your head and it's not relevant to anything, right? <laughs> anything that comes into your head is going out of your mouth. It's going straight out of your mouth into the microphone and out and to a bemused audience, going, "What is this guy talking about?" That time you asked whether you were whether you'd switch the immersion off live on air. That was weird. <laughs> that was weird. But it's literally anything. And you know the, the mistakes that you make. You know misidentifying players. I think I did it when when Ireland. Uh, when the Thierry Henry goal, the Thierry, remember the Thierry Henry handball goal against? Uh, I think I remember it. Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> it, well, again, it wasn't Thierry Henry's goal. No, we didn't. We didn't actually have. Game. We didn't have commentary rights for that match. But I do remember that I was actually on air just as it was happening, more or less, mm-hmm. doing like an update. And obviously, I misidentified the goal scorer. I mean, it was William Gallas. I can't remember who I said it was because it, whenever we played the clip back after that, that mistake had been. Lightly edited. (laughs) (laughs) It's a goal by... Oh my God, it's a handball. So what I'm saying, the point of all this is to say that I don't judge football commentary. I don't even do it in my head anymore. When I hear a commentator, what I I feel, when I hear a commentator say something stupid, I've got this like Christ-like feeling of of (laughs) forgiveness that comes over me. And I say, look, I know that you've just said a stupid thing. I know you probably feel bad about it. And you know, it's okay. I want you to know... It's okay. But thankfully, Gary Neville has a lot more self-confidence in you, apparently, again. Well, maybe. Bulletproof maybe. self-confidence. <laughs> and if you heard him, th- this is always the concern. But by the same, by the, the same logic that we're talking about here, that, that this is always the concern when a player, recently retired player, starts 
becoming a pundit, especially somebody as connected to a club like Manchester United, that uh, who have been the dominant force for so long, that they're going to be reluctant to criticise people they know and they're going to be reluctant to criticise people who were in the same situation maybe as they were in. Gary Neville... Did he's, the, well, he's already he's already been reluctant, I think, well, to criticise people he's been working he, with. No, he has, yeah, that is true. But that doesn't... But despite that, he's still been a brilliant pundit. You know, mm-hmm. I think he's good enough that he can... He, obviously, I think it was Graham Hunter's first big interview podcast. He talked to Gary Neville in detail and Neville t- talked about trying to take it... Trying to take a breath after something happens involving a player and related to something that he remembers from his own career, either happening to him or to somebody around him, and to try to give that sort of uh, a nuanced view on things. And I think, he, if, if anything, he'll, he'll be a better pundit from this. He's actually managed now. He does know what it's like to be under fire. And I really don't see why that would in any way, why he would be feel encumbered or by some sense of duty towards other managers. I, I, I think, and I certainly don't think there's any less authority. I don't think he becomes a bad pundit. What he did was he made a bad career decision. Yeah. And I think it might affect his coaching career. Well, it probably will. Um, but I don't think it's going to affect. If he wants to, if Gary never walked into Sky tomorrow and said, "I want to be full time pundit again," no, yeah, I want to do the game on Sunday. I, yeah, I don't think there'd be a major issue. Yeah, I don't think it would yeah. be a problem either. No. I just, it is an interesting point, though. You know, and I, I think that, uh, that you know, we're looking at it this way, and I think we all agree that it it shouldn't harm. But I think in some people's heads, it will it will harm him. You know, um, and it it is kind of funny that you you have this standard of people. Like, say, Gerlach Nan, when he was doing the... He did the Sunday game, having been a clear hurling manager, absolutely brilliant manager for them. After a couple of years of doing punditry, he felt that he couldn't continue being a pundit without sampling management again. So he took over Galway, was very unsuccessful, and that was that. But that was his own opinion, that he couldn't... Really? That's why he went to Galway? In yeah, part? well, in part, yes. Mm. But, I mean, it, but he said that he felt he couldn't be relevant as a pundit, as a pundit if he didn't see how the game had progressed since he had left the game. And, I, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we, we don't ask that of all pundits, but maybe pundits in their own head do think that, mm. that, uh, that their CV is somehow linked to the level of respect that we have for them as, as pundits. I think it's kind of interesting. Well, we haven't even started the report on sport yet, so mm. we hit the music. Ah, there we go. So we'll get back to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'll get back to Gary Neville a little later. Did that happen to you in commentary much? Coughing fits? Uh, I, I, oh, Christ, though. I think you're being a bit hard on yourself. You put a bad, you yeah, put a bad memory I, in my head. Well, go on, sorry, good. sorry, what's the bad memory? Sorry, my friend. So it was, the, it, was the first, it was the first day of the 2011-2012 season. Mm-hmm. Um, um, or maybe the, second, maybe the second day. I can't remember. Did they all kick off the same day? I had to go to Stoke. Stoke against Chelsea. Andre Villas-Boas, the new Chelsea manager. Um... Uh, and I remember, actually, um, I was very ill, very ill. Uh, but nevertheless, I soldiered on up to Stoke. What else? What else are you going to do? I had to stop at a couple of motorway service stations. On there's no need to go into what happened at those <laughs> service stations. <laughs> but eventually, I, Dear I, God. I, I, I made it to uh, to Stoke. But you're glad you have to have old. <laughs> very uh, sort of pale and drawn uh, to meet my co-commentator for the day, Mr. Pat Nevin who I'd spoken to before on the phone, but never actually met in person. Very nice guy. Fine, very lo- lovely man. But of course, I was somewhat I was somewhat below par. Uh, and I found that ev- every time I finished a sentence, I had to immediately press the button, uh, the, the sort of button to shut off the, my microphone, so that I could embark on this coughing, spluttering, <laughs> my lungs are practically turning inside out type of, type of fit, you know. Uh, and Pat Nevin, 
such was his smooth professionalism. He understood. We, we didn't have to speak about it. I mentioned that I was oh, feeling a little, you know, oh, not great. But uh, as the game, when the game started, it became apparent that I was basically unable to talk half the time because I was going... <laughs> 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 okay. Stop. And... And I'll pat Nevin. Worse than epic the ghouls. Off mic would have been fine there. We would have <laughs> worse than the ghouls. Pat Nevin had to keep talking. You know, he had to keep he, he had to keep co-commentating for as long. Like he was he was co-commentating, but actually he was looking at me, kind of with a certain <laughs> amount. Of, like, is, is this guy for real? You know, I've never I don't know if I've ever seen this. Guy. I better get paid for both roles here. Thanks, Pat Nevin. <laughs> I hope I don't pick something up off this guy. This looks serious. Um. Yeah, I don't know why that came into my head. On yeah, well, no, because it's been I asked about coughing fits. Yeah, yeah, coughing fits. And ter- they're they're terrible. But like, <sighs> as long as you've got that thing, as long as you can cut off the channel. You know, once you're in a football stadium, it's a noisy enough environment, so you don't uh, your coughing isn't necessarily I feel overheard. Like could be a full podcast devoted to maybe even a bonus podcast at some stage. Mm. Tweet us at Second Captains if you want an entire bonus podcast dedicated to Ken's memories of commentating on Premier League games, misidentifying players, coughing fits, <laughs> and the like visits to service stations. Being. Uh, being taken apart by Luis Suarez just with a look. Don't waste, no, don't waste your material. Yeah, this bonus, this bonus podcast will rise or fall on this Luis Suarez. If we get, if if we, if we get more than one tweet asking for this podcast, we we may consider doing it. Still remember Luis Suarez's little look. Ah, look who it is. Bad news for the Republic of Ireland today? Um, Potentially. Potentially bad news. John Walters it's reported in the uh, Irish Daily Mail. Faces a cartilage operation. Oh, not Johnny Walters. Now um, it's it is Johnny Walters. Uh, the sooner you get your head around it, on the better. Uh, and Johnny Walters. It seems as though he may need an operation, which could put him out for six to eight weeks. Oh, and okay. Where, where are we at now? Be manageable. Uh, <clears throat> end of March, thirty-first of March. So that we're talking about taking him into mid. Mid to late May. Mm-hmm. It's pretty soon before the European Championships. Uh, and then suddenly you've got a process by which he's got to return to fitness. Fitness being quite a big component of Johnny Walters' game. I'm not suggesting he's going to be, you know, if he if he needs this operation, that he's going to spend his rehabilitation, um, you know, eating pastries and, and weeping. I think he, he would try and keep himself in shape. But, you know, the match fitness uh, obviously takes a bit of a hit. And then there aren't too many matches left to play your way back into to, to full sort of sharpness. On the other hand, maybe maybe rest is what you need at this stage. I like the sound of the timing in one sense. I, now I don't, maybe he wouldn't have been able to play on with this injury, but it seems rather convenient that he he still has a shot at the Euros. You know, maybe his club manager thinks, right, okay, Europa League. Do we really want to be there? Who cares? Uh, this is a player who's been one of our most loyal servants, etc. Let's give him a shot at the Euros here. Let's ha- let him have the operation now, rather than soldiering on for a few more games. Yeah, well, maybe that has helped. I mean, they do have the Stoke at least are, are in a position where they don't have to rely on John Walters. They're, you know, we probably he's more important player in our team than he is in Stoke's at the moment. Although you know he has got back into the team, it looked as though maybe he was going to find it difficult to get in there with you know Bohan and. Um, Shakiri and Arnautovic all playing but you know you, you tend to find if John Walters is in your squad that he ends up getting in your team even if you didn't even if you hadn't been planning that way that's the way it works <laughs> yeah. out um, so yeah I mean I, I don't know wh- whether this is definitely going to happen but um, 
If it does, uh, let's just hope he's back uh, in time. Um, we do have to mention, Owen, I was up, uh, I went up to Windsor Park on Monday. Oh, yeah. I never asked you. So, there go. I went very well. Northern Ireland against Slovenia. Another win for the boys in green. Ten matches unbeaten, which I think That's is pretty impressive. I think it might be a record. It's definitely equaling some Billy Bingham. A lot of pictures of Billy Bingham in the program, actually. I think it was four three pictures of Michael O'Neill to Billy Bingham. Um, <laughs> a handsome man, Bingham. Uh, he's you know a fine a fine head of hair. Reminds me a bit of Sean Fitzpatrick in a way. You know that yeah. sort of yeah yeah yeah, that yeah. sort of head that distinguished sort of older gentleman yeah. Um, Who is it? Which Sean Fitzpatrick? The the, Not the banking genius, one. as opposed to the New Zealand hooker. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Sean Fitzpatrick, banking genius. <laughs> banking genius. Yeah. Um, yeah. The first line of the obituary there. <laughs> <laughs> so we we were. Uh, oh, oh yeah. So I went up to Windsor Park. I was like, okay, I haven't been here before. This is gonna be. Let's see what this is like. I got a ticket for the no, uh, the, the lower north stand. Because uh, I wanted to in with the plebs, like you weren't uh, yeah. in the press box, huh? yeah. Because I wanted because because I wanted to see what the atmosphere was like, what the songs were like, really. Our very own Hunter S. Thompson over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not the press box for me. <laughs> that um, is true Gonzo journalism, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting there with some probably impeccably behaved Northern Ireland fans. Yeah. Absolutely impeccably behaved Northern Ireland were fans. They? Absolutely, yeah. Offering I mean, cups of tea from you in their thermos. I thought to myself, this place is is different from how James McLean described it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're hoping for a bit of the spirit of November '93. I really don't recognise this place at all from James McLean's descriptions of it that he gave when he did those interviews before the before Euro 2012, explaining why he didn't want to go. I mean, Belfast itself is obviously insane. <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's an offensive town. Just the town, just the just what's painted on all the walls is it makes it an it's, it's an offensive place. It's not a safe space, right? It's it, there, it's you know, it's not that type of town. Um, what, despite all the progress in the last number of years? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I'm talking about the messaging here, not so much the murals not, specifically. Yeah, the, the murals and the, and the graffiti and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you walk around; it's amazing the stuff that you see. Just. It's 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 really interesting just walking around and seeing all this stuff. And apologies to anyone, by the way, who's always in Belfast and is like, I can't believe this idiot is blabbing on about Belfast. How basic is this? Like, you know, uh, but I mean, I had been in Belfast in a long time. So I was walking around looking at this and, you know, so you see, oh, it's just so much stuff. You know, what I love especially is those pictures of King Billy. King Billy, the, you know, the 17th century prince on his horse and waving a sword. <laughs> Why is this guy? Why is this man in his 17th century wig staring down at me from the gable end of this row of terrace houses in 2016? This is bizarre. It's, it's completely insane. Uh, but obviously, you know, he's a. Uh, by the way, we, we misidentified um, a King it was William a of Orange. King Billy, yeah. there, there's so many William, Williams of Orange out there that we, when the, when the Dutch had voted King William of Orange their greatest Netherlander. Uh, or their second greatest Netherlands. Oh, this is during our Johan Cruyff show, yeah. Yeah, um, and someone tweeted us to to point out that that was actually not the William of Orange that myself and Kieran uh, thought he was. William, <clears throat> the William of Orange who's popular in Ulster, is William the Third. You don't mean it there. <clears throat> That's nice Sorry. Kid. Well, well, we both we both 
we both. I, I, I can't remember the exact comment I made, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll take your word. For and it. I failed to correct you both, so. Right. Yeah, so owns owns there, yes. On you go there. Well, William III, he's on a few murals, you know, uh, the flags like hanging from the lamppost. It's very handy. You know exactly what type of area you're in at all times. Uh, (laughs) You know, the paramilitaries, UVF fighters, you know, uh, killed, murdered by the enemies, this kind of stuff. Um, You know, poppy, bedecked uh, war memorials. The Queen, there's a lot of royal... You mostly seem to be hanging around the loyalist areas, Virgin Bay. Well, the, the, I, I mean, I was. I, I started off going through, well, around Sandy Row there, British and proud. Um, there's also, you know, Alex Higgins, George Best, those kind of guys. Um, on the way over there, I went up to Falls Road then and walked around there. And you see essentially similar stuff, just reversed. Um, and a few nastier pieces of graffiti as well. Uh Tags will be dealt with. K-A-T, K-A-T, you know, this kind of stuff. Hoods will be left where they're found. Where they're. W-E-R-E-T-H-E-I-R. You're just looking at it going, mouth spray. Oh, God. Get your own little uh, spray spray paint can out and correct their grammatical errors. So you're so anyway, go down well. This is this is all this is all news to everybody. Bel- so Belfast has got some murals. Big Divided deal. town. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I was, I was kind of interested to see what it would be like at Windsor Park going along. And Windsor Park is actually just this friendly little, uh, like um, a lower league ground, you know, in, in England. It's like, uh, um, it reminded me a bit of, say, the Brighton Stadium, where the South Africa-Japan uh, match was. Except at one, uh, one end of it, the cop, the mighty Spion cop of Windsor is currently empty. It's, it's like being rebuilt. Okay, well, that could have affected atmosphere. The, the atmosphere is really good. I mean, that's usually where the kind of Northern Ireland hardcore would be, but it's just seemed they'd migrated to the other end of the ground. Um, and so I was obviously listening to songs and my antennae were exquisitely attuned to, <laughs> you know, any possible, you know, you know, what yeah. I was look, looking for. And I heard absolutely nothing. I didn't even hear 10 German bombers, <clears throat> which is a song that Northern Ireland fans have a habit of singing. I think, well, it's not, not a fancy thing about the RAF from England shot them down. No, the RAF from Ulster shot them down. The RAF is from Ulster in this version of the song. Um, but I didn't hear that. Uh, what, you know, mainly the song is uh, Everywhere We Go, It's the Ulster Boys Making All the Noise Everywhere We Go. That's the, um, you know, to the kind of Viva Ronaldo tune. Um, they sing a song about George Best, Spirit in the Sky song. Uh, quite a lot of songs about Stevie Davis, who was, who looked to me, well, head and shoulders, their best footballer. Um, what else? I mean, fair- so, a question about the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, they're a winning team now. Yeah. And that automatically changes the atmosphere on any ground. I'm not saying that's brilliant to hear. That's actually really, really positive to hear that there were no uh, songs that would be deemed offensive down here being sung. But. Do you think that that has as much to do with the fact that they've, they're 10 games unbeaten, they're looking forward to a major tournament for the first time in, what, 30 years? Mm. Um, I mean, it, it would only be natural for there to be a much more positive atmosphere at a game uh, this week than this week four years ago when they were in the doldrums. Well, yeah, there was nothing, <clears throat> there's nothing on the line, really. It's just a friendly. The team's playing well. Everyone's excited about the Euros. Um, Paris, we're going to... Paris, you know Alice, that song. Mm-hmm. Who is Alice? 
and they have a song, variation on that. There's quite, there's quite a lot. Fa- of- they were singing a foul mouthed version of the song <laughs> Alice, is what I could report <laughs> exclusively from with the record. Um, the language. I mean, when you say there's nothing offensive, it's maybe it depends on how willing to be offended you are. Like, I mean, say for instance, what McLean was saying about Windsor Park. Uh, you know, this, you know, all these lads with their Union Jacks and sectarian songs and chants and blah, blah, blah. Now, I didn't hear any sectarian songs or chants. Uh, I didn't, uh, even looking around at the flags and stuff, you know, it wasn't like a, a sea of Union Jacks, you know, like last night, the proms or anything. You see like a few red hand flags. That is the flag of Northern Ireland, <laughs> you know, and it's like the flag that they use. They sing the, they sing God Save the Queen for the National Anthem, obviously. When they sing God Save the Queen, in the middle of it, they, uh, as it goes, her, they put in No Surrender. Some of them, not all, but you can, you can hear it. So No Surrender will be, uh, is, is obviously a loyalist chant, which uh, some people are going to find offensive. James McLean would be one of the people who would. Uh, and then there's the song, uh, then there's the bouncy that they do. If you look at Windsor Park, actually on Google Maps at the moment, which I did because I was trying to find my way to Windsor Park, yeah. you see someone has put in the words "bouncy killed the cop," uh, because the da- uh, the they had to, they've had to rebuild the cop stand after I think it was a qualifier against Finland last year, where um, they you know, people could report that the people reported afterwards that the ground seemed to be shaking underneath them. And they kind of inspected the stand and found all this damage, like buckled girders and cracks were sort of appearing. So, you know, things could have gone, uh, could have gone badly wrong there. But someone has written Bouncy Kill the Cop. They do, they have this kind of thing where they sing, let's all do the Bouncy. 50-50 cashback. What's, I, I don't know what the original air is. I think is. it was 50-50 cashback. 50-50 50 cashback. Yeah. Let's all do the Bouncy. And they jump up and down. Now, you could take offense. You could take offense to that chat as well. It depends on whether you want to see it as a sinister manifestation of anti-Catholic hatred or simply a thing that football fans do. Mm. Um, because uh, that, that's also a chant or a variation, the kind of a bouncy thing. You know, it's because it's a thing that you sing while you're all jumping up and down. So the whole crowd, you can see them all bouncing up and down. <clears throat> Hence, bouncy kill the cop. But, um, you know, they're... <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to how to put it. I mean, uh, are you aware of the history of the song or no. the insinuations which are said no. to, which the song is said to have? Um, well, certainly it has been alleged that this song, and I think with some substance, definitely in the case of what happens at Ibrox Park, that this song, when people are doing it, uh, one that th- that it has a reference to the death of Robert Hamill, who was a Catholic, who was beaten to death in Ported Down in 1997. Uh, and that let's all do the bouncy, or if you can, I did a bouncy, you're a Tim, uh, has reference to the, well, uh, the beating, which ended his life. Um, is that really what's going on here? I mean, I was speaking to a Northern Ireland fan about this. He said, no, no, I don't, you know, that's, in, in the Northern Ireland context, that does, that, that, that connotation doesn't exist. I mean, it's hard to think of that being the connotation. When you look around, you know, you see all these little kids doing it. It doesn't, you know, it looks totally innocent. However, I'm sure that if you wanted to, if, if you could also see that in a dark, in a dark way. You know what I mean? So it, it, to an extent, how offended you are will, I suppose, depend on uh, on uh, on your expectations or, or your your beliefs about the 
dark darkness or otherwise of the motives of the people you see doing this. We've got to skip by the Republic of Ireland stuff, though, Ken. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting couple of games. Uh, we, we obviously talked about the one on Friday already on Monday, but uh, so for Slovakia, we saw quite a different system. Obviously, you know, different selection. I mean, let's have a look at different players. But uh, the main thing is a different system, uh, four four two diamond. The idea here is although, you know, you've got more players in the middle, you're going to try and hang on to the ball a bit more. Um, you're not going to be outnumbered. Uh, the width is all provided by the fullbacks. Uh, what we saw then was Slovakia scoring two goals down the down the wings um, as our maybe our fullbacks were a little bit exposed by that. It wasn't really as though they were complaining about it, but what I found interesting was Cyrus Christie, for instance, after the match, talking about how we only found out that that was what we were going to do just before the game. O'Neill doesn't, he, he doesn't tell them, okay, guys, this is what we're doing for this game. Let's work on this in training. He doesn't do that. He just tells them before the game, this is what we're doing today. And Even competitively, you think? I mean, surely competitively they're working on stuff all week. Well, I don't know. Games, I mean. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that is, that is an interesting point. But, you know, the, just the fact that he would say, I think it's, I mean, it's an interesting approach. I think a lot of coaches now like to prepare tactics in detail. O'Neill is obviously saying that he believes the players are capable of doing whatever he asks them to do at short notice. You know, you know how to play a 4-4-2 diamond. It's not like, you know, landing a rocket on the moon or whatever, let's say. Is that just another way of saying it's not rocket science? <laughs> <laughs> landing a rocket on the moon. <laughs> Um, Manipulating a rocket in some way is, is <laughs> driving is driving a rocket maybe easier than actually designing one uh, scientifically. Look, uh, <laughs> one, one way or the other, uh, this is this is what he's saying. Alan Judge said the same thing before the uh, after the game on Friday. You know, we literally in fact, he he was playing like in a different position to the one he usually plays. He was just told before the game. He also said something interesting about um, uh, the fact that Roy Keane had told him at halftime, um, "We're we don't have a lot of the ball here. This is the time though to show." the manager that he can trust you without the ball. It's just good to hear uh, Keane actually having some useful input like that. I don't mean to suggest that he's he doesn't have it usually. No, but, but you're, 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 never yeah, you're never 100% clear what the assistant manager does in any case. Mm. I mean, in the case of in the case of what, what's going to happen with the squad, it's hard really to say. I mean, the one thing you'd say that if, if you had a big green arrow next to any player uh, indicating his surge up the rankings, it would be Shane Duffy. Uh, who played really well in the game against uh, Switzerland. And a big red arrow would probably be next to the name of Paul McShane. Yeah, it was unfortunate for McShane. It was unfortunate, but, you know, I mean, there, there, was, an there was an unfortunate element to it, and there was a, just a b poor play element. For instance, um, he nearly got done before Sovak actually scored, quite early on, sort of following the ball and not the runner on a 1-2. You know, the, a run, a 1-2 was played, and he just kind of followed the ball and the guy ran in behind him and was just, Slovakia were unfortunate they couldn't quite get the ball through to that guy because he was in on goal. Then McShane got caught uh, in a kind of, uh, you know, right out by the left touch line on halfway, got caught by Eric Sabo, who, who beat him very easily. That was the run up to the first goal. Uh, and then the second goal was an own goal by McShane. Although, in McShane's defense, I think that he would have been looking at Stephen Ward and asking, really? Is that the best you could do there? That reminded me a bit of myself on the last goal. Because, you know, they had, uh, Slovakia had moved down the right side. Ward, like McCarthy was there um, blocking, I think it was Sabo, who then played the ball to the right back, who Ward had totally lost. He got nowhere near him. And that guy put over a dangerous cross, and McShane put it in. Um, McShane was in a difficult situation. I, you know, to be honest, I thought Ward should have done better. 
But yeah, I would say McShane probably the one. But again, you know, can you even say that McShane isn't going to go? I don't think he can. You know, any these players could all get injured. Uh, you know, you saw what happened to Elliot. It's totally random, really. You saw what happened. What's happening to Walters at the moment? You know, so nobody can really say that they're uh, guaranteed. Uh, it's also worth stressing that for players like Wes Houlihan and Shane Long, who in different have faced challenges in different ways, but m- both of whom would have taken a lot longer to get to the status within the squad than they probably would have hoped themselves. Uh, they, I think they really pushed their cases forward. Like Long was brilliant. Oh, yeah, he was on yeah. the pitch the other night. And Wes Hoolan actually got better as he went along, which is great because there's all this underlying idea that has nurtured sometimes that he can't play two games in a row. Maybe his stamina isn't amazing. But it looked to me when he was being taken off, he just contributed at three or four moments in the previous 10, 15 minutes that mm. were just brilliant. Typical of Wes Hoolan, either super passes, skipping by a player with a nice touch, getting it's fouled a lot, which mm. is a handy attribute to have when mm. you're a team like Ireland who aren't great in possession to actually have a guy who'll, who'll get fouled and win freeze. Yeah. It's just, I think everyone knows Wes is great, but it's, it's probably important for those guys just to keep it ticking over in O'Neill's mind that we should be starting these games. Yeah, and the yeah, point that you made in the Irish Times this morning as well about these vast squads that Martin O'Neill announces, yeah. it, it does keep everyone on their toes. And you, you, what you didn't see over the last two games were uh, big players coasting because they know they're definitely in the team and they don't have to do anything. Yeah. And that's... That's probably worthwhile. No, it's 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 good. Uh, just one other thing arising out of those games. You you mentioned Hulan there. O'Neill was surprised to hear that Hulan had 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 said that he uh, was considering he, he would look at his international future after the tournament. O'Neill was genuinely surprised when this was raised by uh, a journalist in the uh, you know the press daily daily press right. conference, daily papers press conference, and he and he kind of said, "Well, you know, I didn't know that. Uh, you've caught me by surprise there." Wes though is a young sixty-two. He's that, that was the joke. That was, nah. you know, I was looking at you thinking, is this another no, that was commentator's gaff? No, 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 no. That was that. Martin O'Neill said that. You know, he's got a young face. He could pass for 18, 19, 20. Uh, but also, he hasn't played a whole lot of games for whatever reason. You know, for a 33-year-old, he hasn't played as many games as a lot of other guys his age. Therefore, uh, he's kind of younger than his age would suggest. I mean, he's 34 in May. Which, by any standards, is, is getting on a little bit as a as a player. But O'Neill's argument seemed to be he hasn't got as many miles on the clock, and therefore, which is good. Which is good to hear Martin O'Neill say that, um, because why why can't he play all three games of the Euros? I don't know. That's it for Kennedy's report on sport. And Randall sends it long. That's his kind of side. Shane Long. Shane Long's in behind the defence. Shane Long against Moyer. Ed Malian is in Spain and ready to talk to us about the timeline behind the Gary Neville sacking and it certainly was a sacking Ed that was very clear in the statements made by both the player and the club it, it seems pretty clear now that he was actually sacked last week and just nobody said anything at the time um, it certainly seemed the decision was taken uh, in the wake of that Celta Vigo game if you remember he delayed his departure to St George's Park to meet up with England so that they could have uh, a crisis meeting I suppose with one of Peter Lim's uh, close business associates I think 
fundamentally, uh, everyone knew that this was going to happen, that there was going to be a parting of the ways. It was just a case of, of the fact that Gary seemed to know before he went away with England, didn't tell anyone, didn't tell Roy Hodgson, didn't tell the England players, didn't tell the Valencia players. He flew back to Valencia yesterday morning, that's Wednesday morning. And, um, you know, they said, right, well, let's announce it this afternoon. So I got a call around yesterday lunchtime uh, saying that it was going to happen. Um, so we started preparing kind of for that eventuality. But it's not a huge surprise. It gives Valencia a bit more time to rebuild, you know, an extra eight or nine games this season before uh, the preseason, etc. And it gives Gary time to reflect and then perhaps look at what he's going to do next. What is he going to be reflecting on, do you think? Because this is, this is not... This was obviously not how he envisaged things planning out when he agreed to take this job just four months ago. Well, how do you think he's going to... Uh, what, if he looks back on this, what's, what's he going to wish he had done differently? Well, I mean, there, there are a lot of lessons. Uh, it's going to be one hell of a learning experience. He's, he's obviously learned the hard way that what he is best at is he's a communicator. Um, he's a brilliant communicator. It's why he was so highly regarded as a pundit. And when you don't speak the language that your players speak, that becomes a bit of an issue, you know, when, when that's your real strength. And obviously he's got all the coaching badges, the, the coaching itself and the experience of playing in top level teams. He had that. But to be able to communicate that to your players and to get them to play at, a, at you know, that elite level, um, you're talking at a level where you're playing against teams like Real Madrid and Barcelona and you need that extra one or two percent and you can't even get close to that um i think motivating his players was a lot harder in spain than it will be in england where he's got perhaps more respect from the players so what he will do now is he'll kind of take stock of everything he's very self-reflective he's always trying to improve himself um he's very determined but then what he's got to do is he's got to pick his next job very very wisely i think because um there's a lot of people who seem to be almost joying in his uh in his failure there yeah, I've kind of noticed that as well. There seems to be, uh, I don't know, even though he, be, he he was a very unpopular player, I suppose, we can't forget mm. that. He turned himself into this brilliant pundit that, that everybody at the minimum respected as a pundit and in some cases uh, loved, loved watching, a lot of us loved watching Gary Neville on TV. But I don't know, maybe the negative reaction is dating back to his time as a deeply unpopular emblem of Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. It was an interesting um, thing. I was trying to explain it to someone over here uh, when he first got hired, who they didn't really understand the fuss. They were like, how on earth has Gary never got this job? Because they hadn't seen the, the Sky Sports kind of um, football coverage and the way it, that it changed everyone's perception of Neville. Do you remember that, um, the Keane versus Vieira yeah, documentary, documentary on ITV where they, um, and Roy Keane on there, he was talking about why he, you know, why he got so mad at Vieira in the tunnel that time. And he said that, you know, Vieira was picking on Gary Neville. I was like, you know, if you want to pick on someone, pick on me, pick on Stan, but, you know, not Gary Neville. It was, the small little ratish sort of defender who had a terrible moustache and all of that sort of stuff. And it it suddenly reminded me, yeah, God, we, you know, everyone used to kind of dislike Gary Neville. He was a horrible little guy who'd scream at linesmen and all that sort of stuff. And he completely rehabilitated his reputation on television. Um, and that uh, perhaps it's a harking back to the Man United days that people are enjoying his failure. I think, I don't know, it seems to me to be the same sort of people that complain there are no English managers in the Premier League that seem to be delighting in the the fact that he's done badly in, in Spain. Personally, I think that he will go on to succeed somewhere else. I think he's got too many things going for him to keep failing in management. But 
you never know. Hopefully, you know, he can prove those people wrong because I think it's a bit sad. Yeah, I mean, he did at least, you know, I saw people saying, oh, you know, this is going to be great if he ends up on Sky, uh, back on Sky, you know, A, because I'd, I'd like to see him on there, B, because, you know, Jamie Carragher will make fun of him. Uh, like that time at Valencia, Gary, could be the answer to almost everything that, that Gary Neville says. On the other hand, Gary Neville did actually go out there and, you know, try to do it. At least he kind of took the risk of doing it, whereas Jamie Carragher seems to have been quite comfortable in that studio ever since he arrived. Last time I saw um, Jamie Carragher, he was at um, the new Camp for Barcelona-Valencia, which was the game where Valencia lost 7-0. So he was, he was right there at the lowest point of that reign. He saw Gary being asked to resign three times by the, uh, the local press. It was one of the most tense press conferences I've ever been in in my life. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience. and So he was there for that. So I don't think you're going to see too much outward mocking of Gary Neville at any point by Jamie Carragher because he saw uh, what it was. And, and talking to Jamie, he appreciate he kind of appreciated that, that Gary taking a huge risk and, and, and far braver than most managers would be. Uh, personally, I've got a feeling he won't go straight back to TV. I think we might see him make a couple of appearances. He'll probably do a very well-timed newspaper interview, most likely with The Telegraph, who he used to have a contract with. But I don't think... He'll go back to, to TV for now. I think he'll be so determined to succeed in management. He'll be so focused on England this summer uh, that the TV thing won't appeal to him for now. In many ways, I feel like his opinion is that he's done that. He did five years of that to help him prepare to be a manager. But the whole point was he always wanted to be a coach, despite some quotes which got taken out of context a couple of months ago. And he's going to be a coach for the next 10, 15 years in his mind. So... I would be. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't go back to Sky for the time being, at least not on any sort of permanent basis. Do you think he definitely does want to be a coach? Because I mean, those quotes you say they were taken out of context. Maybe you can explain that because they did sound, they sounded interesting. I mean, we know that we know that uh, previously, if you wanted to work in football, really, you know, if you were Gary Neville's age, you pretty much had to be a manager. But now there are all kinds of intermediate roles in between coach, you know, first team coach and owner. There's a lot of things that you know a football man can do without necessarily having to sit on the bench or do press conferences or, or be the focal point of supporters' abuse. Uh, I got the impression that Gary Neville might be quite interested in being a, a sort of sporting director figure. Uh, maybe that was what he was driving at in those comments when he said, "Oh, you know, coaching isn't my." Um, my personal opinion is um, not. I, I kind of thought sporting director because if you if you look at what he's done at Valencia, a lot of his work um, has been to do with remedying the club's terrible infrastructure. You know, this, this club is an absolute mess and he's brought in staff, not coaches and stuff, you know, he's brought in staff just to help the actual club function. He did things like he moved his office so that the players had a place to stretch after going to the gym. Um, he, he was doing all these things which weren't really the job of a manager. Um, they were the job of almost like a, a chairman or a CEO. And when you talk to him, the impression I got, I, I actually, I, I said, well, you know, as a sporting director, the sort of role that would interest you. And um, I think he wouldn't like to deal with agents. I think he wouldn't like to all that nonsense that comes with being a sporting director and little leaks to the press, which he's been on the uh, the back end of with the Valencia sporting director who's come in since he's been there. I think fundamentally, it, it, the CEO, the chairman job, actually suits him really well. He's quite a savvy businessman. And I wouldn't be surprised if Salford City rose up the leagues to see him maybe taking on a, a more senior role there. Um, but 
no, what he explained those those management comments as is that he doesn't see himself as a manager long term, and he then you know for the rest of his life, like Alex Ferguson, until he's seventy. But he's he does want to succeed as a, a coach or a manager, and he's pretty determined on doing that. So um, I think he will go virtually straight into another job in the summer, whether that's being in the job full time or perhaps a, a Premier League one. It sounds like you don't think his reputation necessarily is as battered by this experience as a lot of people seem to be saying this morning. I think uh, I wrote yesterday that it's he's it'll be battered and bruised, but he's not lost his credibility. Um, and a lot of that he has to thank the fact that Valencia is in such a state. People appreciate that this club is an absolute disaster zone. Um, they've had 16 managers in 16 years. If you look at the managers they've sacked in that time, one of them's top of the Premier League, Claudio Ranieri. You've got Ronald Koeman, who's done a great job at Southampton. Got guys like Rafa Benitez, who won the Champions League. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of good managers that Valencia have got rid of in the past, and he's just got to hope that he's the next one. All right, Ed Malian, great to talk to you. Thanks, Neil. No worries, cheers. It seems like Gary Neville has another string to his bow, another talent, and that is keeping a secret. I, mean, I don't know if you guys have ever had to keep a secret, but to do, to do it for that long. Ah, come on. It's easy to keep embarrassing secrets. <laughs> you know? But the hardest kind of secret to keep is someone else's embarrassing secret. But your own embarrassing secret is, mm. you know, or, may, or maybe you, Yeah. <laughs> it's in the vault, Owen. It's in the vault. Or maybe, in the vault. maybe your own... If it's great news about yourself, if you had just gotten the Valencia job, maybe that would be harder to... You might be able to. The, that, that might leak out as well. Yeah. All right, uh, we're going to talk to Philippe Auclair now about France, whose national team has looked really impressive, Philippe, in the last couple of friendlies. 3-2 win in Holland, 4-2 win at home to Russia, scoring a lot of amazing goals. Are you starting to feel pretty confident about their chances at the Euros? Um, fairly confident in some respects, yes. I think that um, what has been very impressive is the way that um, the, the French public has reconnected uh, with the national team in a way, perhaps, that we were not um, quite hoping, partly due to the, uh, uh, the attacking um, prowess, for once I'll use the word <laughs> uh, without making a joke of it, but it generally was very, very impressive um, to score you know, seven goals and seven goals of that quality in um, those two games against teams which, okay, are not part of the absolute elite of, of European football, perhaps, but still, you know, decent opposition. Uh, interesting as well to see uh, that all seven goals have been scored by different players. Um, you know, Olivier Giroud scored, and heaven knows he needed to. Antoine Griezmann, Blaise Matuidi, Dimitri Payet scored an absolutely uh, astonishing free kick against the Russians. André Pergignac, uh, fresh from his exploits in Mexico, uh, was very good and scored a very good header as well. And Golo Kante scores for his um, first proper start. Kingsley Coman, um, I mean, what he did uh, is just absolutely breathtaking um, to, to, to score as well. Uh, so, yes, in a way, I think that um, one of the dangers is for people to get a little bit carried away by the verve of this uh, uh, French team uh, when it attacks, because that would be my... I, w- I would have perhaps two um, caveats... One of them is I think people have been have been a bit over enthusiastic perhaps about those two wins in what were friendlies, and there's also and there are also big big problems in defence uh, which need to be sorted out pretty quickly, particularly on, on set pieces. I mean you know France scored seven times but conceded 
uh, four goals, three of, three of them uh, consecutive to corner kicks or free kicks. It's interesting, Philippe, that you mentioned the connection that the fans are starting to feel towards mm. the national team. Again, this has obviously been a complex issue for a number of years. We were speaking to Emmanuel Petit in Dublin a couple of weeks ago, and he was uh, well, he was really good talking about his own experiences in France 98 and what that team represented. He was extremely skepti- skeptical about the current generation, about their knowledge of, of their country's own football history, about whether they understand the importance of their task as representing their country in some way. Uh, what do you think? Are, is he right to have those concerns? It's, it, it, or is it as long as they do well on the field, that I guess that's probably what supporters will want? I think it is. Um, I mean, I can, I can see where, where Manu is speaking from. And I think it might be valid for some people, some players from that generation. But when we say that generation, you know, this is not actually a very young team. Uh, the average age of the French national team is 27 years old, you know, which is um, about par for course uh, for most uh, top, um, top teams, certainly not very young. Uh, I would also say that some of the players perhaps who embodied this uh, disconnect from history uh, are not currently wearing the French jersey uh, and that there are a number of players within that team who know exactly what it's like and what it means to, to, to wear it. I'm thinking, uh, you know, Bakary Sanya knows it, I, I know that. Um, Blaise Matuidi knows it, uh, Hugo Loris knows it. Uh, there, there's quite a few players in there who have a very clear idea what it means to represent France and not just as a, as a career move. Um, and what was perhaps true of some incarnations of this French team not that long ago, I don't think is true of this one. I, I think we're seeing something strangely similar to what is happening to the England team at the moment, um, where absences, injuries, um, retirements, whatever, have brought on a, a, a new generation um, because they might be a bit older in France, but they, they, m- many of them are players who've hardly got any caps despite being 26, 27 and so forth. And, um, and because of that, they, they are fresher to the task. And uh, there was supposed to be an edition of L'Equipe today. I mean, there's a strike in France, what a surprise. Um, but I've seen the front page and it, uh, it was simply communion. And I think that... Um, the, this French team um, has a very clear idea of its responsibilities and of what it means. You know, I mean, the, the game um, against Russia was the first one to be played at the Stade de France since the uh, awful night of the 13th of November. So I think that will have certainly... Um, if, if some players were unaware of what representing France was before that... I think all of them are today. Mm. The security operation uh, at the Stade de France is, is, is this, I mean, it included snipers and uh, apparently 1,000 extra security personnel at the stadium. Is this a yeah. preview of what we can expect to see uh, at the matches in the Euros? Uh, I think so. Uh, I think it was not just a response to the fact that um, there have been the attacks in, um, in Brussels um, and because of how, how soon this game was happening after the attacks in Brussels especially when you know that the um, terrorist cells which are um, operating in, in, in France and Belgium have got very close connections. I think in a way, and, and I hope people won't mind me using this expression, but this 
friendly was a means to 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 test a bit the um, um, a, a sort of um, real uh, exercise of the kind of um, security operations we have to expect for Euro 2016. I can't see how we're going to escape that. But going to you know, every, I, I haven't heard any bad reactions from that. I mean, it seems to have gone pretty smoothly. Um, there hasn't been um, overreaction, but the fact it's, it's new. I, I know going into a football game, knowing there are snipers stationed on roofs, um, it's a bit of a strange feeling, but unfortunately this is 2016 in France, and this is a um, small price we're going to have to pay for uh, what promises to be an absolutely fascinating tournament. Mm. Um, and uh, maybe I should have actually also uh, mentioned the fact that um, one of the reasons why this game, these games were so important is because they enabled us to go beyond the absolutely dire, sordid um, Benzema affair, and um, which has really poisoned um, the atmosphere around the French national team for a while, ever since it's been revealed that, that, that Mathieu Valbuena had been the victim of an attempted blackmail in which Karim Benzema did play a role. So um, he wasn't there. Uh, Valbuena wasn't there for completely different reasons because Valbuena's football has deteriorated to the point that I don't think he would find a spot in a third division team at the moment, which is very, very sad for a player who'd always been um, a, a great um, servant of, of French football every time he had been called on in the national team. As to Benzema, he's back. He's playing very well uh, for Real Madrid. But now, of course, the great question in France is, should we take him or not? Very quickly, what would your answer to that be? No. Okay, that's quick enough, Philippe. Thanks so much. Thank you. You know, the more I think about it, it it's interesting there that Philippe name-checked a few players who he feels that Emmanuel Petit is basically being a little bit hard on, that he, he reckons that there are a few guys there with a social conscience. And the more I think about it, isn't it, largely about results. I mean, that the France 98 team became popular and emblematic because they won the World Cup. Nobody was liking them too much when Zidane was getting sent off in the early rounds or even in the build-up to it, there wasn't a massive groundswell of support. If this France team does well, if this France team goes and wins the European Championships at home, oh, yeah. short of, I don't know, uh, essentially all they need out off the pitch is basic politeness oh, <laughs> and, and they'll be absolute heroes and they will be seen as emblematic and all those things Benzema all is forgiven <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Benzema is the face of the new fans 73% of uh, Le Keep readers do not want Benzema in the team apparently there was a poll that was that was coming out today so they uh, they seem to be fairly against the idea of him coming back and it does maybe suggest that there are things which happen which I mean, Benzema sure, obviously deserves to be. Any team that picks Olivier Giroud that could pick Karim Benzema, Benzema deserves to be in that team based on footballing Dude. ability alone. However, uh, it's not just about that. So um, maybe they're better off without him. There's another major championship taking place in a few years. That I know you wanted to touch on your report on Sport, Ken. We can get to that now before we wrap up because Amnesty International has released a report on Qatar. Um mm people might not be surprised to hear that it's not overwhelmingly positive in terms of where what they've been up to and where they've been at in the last year or two with regards to human rights, etc. Yeah, I mean, this this whole story regarding the construction work that's going on in Qatar, um, and some of which is to do with the World Cup, a lot of which has to do with just generally Qatar's, you know, massive building program, um, 
which you know has been which is ongoing yeah, for a long time and is bigger than just the World Cup stadium. This obviously has been going on for a while. What Amnesty have done. And, you know, there, there were various statistics put about about the number of deaths of migrant workers and so on. And that this was I felt I felt that with a lot of those reports, um, the link. Uh, what I'm saying is that the, too much of it was being pinned on the World Cup. It's kind of like this is actually a much bigger construction situation than the World Cup. It's a much bigger situation. It's a it's a it's a it's a, a cultural problem in terms of this, the way that things are done in Qatar. It's not necessarily 4,000 workers dying building World Cup stadiums. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the point about this is Amnesty have spoken to people, uh, contractors who are specifically employed on uh, World Cup-related construction. So, for instance, the Khalifa International Stadium, refurbishing that, uh, and the sports, the Aspara Zone sports complex that uh, is around there, uh, and found a lot of uh, abuses. Um now, the, the, na the nature of the abuses that they're talking about has to do with, you know, terrible accommodation. Um, Passports being... The same kind of stuff that we've talked about in the past related to construction, constructions outside of venues, but constructions related to the... Construction projects related to, to, the, to the World Cup. So it's, yeah, having your... Essentially, you're told in your uh, country of origin, oh, you're going to come over here, you're going to get paid X amount... You know, if you want to leave after a few months, you can leave. Well, usual basic human, uh, basic workers' rights. And then you get there, they take your passport off you straight away. You can't go anywhere if you want to leave. You get paid less than you thought. You can't move to another company. Yeah. And you're living in really squalid conditions. Now, this isn't every worker, but this is what they're... What a lot of... The, all, pretty much all the guy, people they interviewed from these companies seem to be saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, also another thing that happens is paying recruitment fees. Like, you have to borrow money to pay a fee to somebody to get you the job, which you're not supposed to that's not supposed to be legal but apparently goes on uh all the time um so yeah i mean there's there's a lot of detail on it um amnesty international have released that report and yeah again, well just on it though sorry to course but fifa and qatar I, uh, but i love the name it's the qatar qatar's supreme committee for delivery and legacy <laughs> that's a grandiose title for a bureaucratic <laughs> Organization yeah. effort. They're saying, look, there are problems, but a lot of these are historical. They say, like, for example, there's part of the statement here from um, the Supreme Committee Amnesty International's investigation. Uh, you know, we, we acknowledge these issues, but this is early 2015 as a result of what was happening. Uh, sorry, as a result of the Supreme Committee's continued enforcement and monitoring efforts, many of the issues raised had been addressed by June of 2015, months before the publication of Amnesty's report. And they're quite strong on that, as are FIFA, that, are, that they actually have made a lot of change, that, that this is somewhat out of date, this report. Now, if it's a battle between, um, in a PR war between Amnesty International and FIFA... I think I'm going to side, side with those guys. It's a question of trust. It's a question of trust. I think I know which way I'm going there. Yeah, that's a, it's kind of one of those problems FIFA have really from arising from things that have happened over the last century or so. Yeah, uh, that's just about it from us. We oh, I've got to mention that we are doing a live show in New York in a couple of weeks, and we've been blown away from the response so far. There seems to be quite a quite a big gang of second captainers mm. in New York City. A We're uh, yes, group of rather them. large uh, amount of emails that we've received. 
Um, yeah, so let's see how that goes. <laughs> if you want to come along to the Brass Monkey in the... We meat- got this. We, 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 it'll be final. Brass Monkey in the Meatpacking District of Manhattan on Wednesday, April 13th. That's very soon. Wednesday, April 13th. Email newyork at secondcaptains.com with your name and the number of tickets you're looking for and we'll meet you, immediately put you into the draw. It's going to be a random draw anyway, so don't worry that there's a lot of people already looking for those tickets. It's not too late. For the rest of you, we will be podcasting that live show as well as recording all the rest of the week's podcasts in Manhattan from April 11th or so. Uh, so looking forward to that one. Can't wait. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Perv. Thank you, Anne. Thank, Thank you, you Anne. for listening. Thank you, Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 